Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. So we are uh, in a series at the moment called Wild and Fire. Um, This is our Lent series. If you're not familiar with what Lent is, Lent is uh, the 40 days uh, that happens before Easter. Uh, The idea traditionally within the Christian church is that you would fast in some way. Normally you would fast uh, everything except one meal a day. And it would be a way of connecting with the story in the hopes that the story would become more alive, more vibrant in our lives. And so as a church this year, we wanted to go on something of a Lent journey together. wanted to, to press into the story deeper. Um, and this, this has really has been our framework, this whole thing of wild and fire. Uh, we've deliberately broken it into three very specific parts, wild and fire. Wild is the first three weeks of which this is week number three at the moment. If you've missed anything, um, you can go check out the, the sermons, svc.org.nz slash sermons. Um, <clears throat> Uh, we've got the second component called And, which is really running through the whole time. What the And thing is, is a podcast that we're releasing every Wednesday. It comes out Wednesday at 6am, so nice and early for all you um, all you sort of early birds or whatever, but it's, it's a great thing to listen to in your car um, or just in the morning when you're having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. Um, it's just a really great way of, of kind of connecting a little bit more. Fran and I have been working on these sort of contemplative, liturgical things. They're only about seven to ten minutes long, um, but it's really a wonderful way of beginning to engage with the scripture. And then the third component is that we head into this whole thing uh, of fire. And so we're going into that next week. And it's this concept of the gospel of Jesus spreading like fire. And so we're going to be looking, diving really intensely into the story of Jesus from next Sunday. And John and uh, Vic's going to be kicking that off for us at the moment. Um, still no clicker? Oh, it's coming. I'm so demanding, you know, just like, I'm trying to get people to run around or whatever. Um, uh, So I'll just give you guys just a little bit of idea of of where we've got to at the moment. Um, So uh, the last two weeks, uh, both myself and Stanley have shared. In the first... In the first Sunday, what I did was I looked at the story of Jesus in the wilderness. This, this is really the story where we get Lent from to begin with. Jesus, straight after being baptized by John, uh, is called into the wilderness uh, by the Spirit of God. He spends 40 days there fasting, and at the end of it, he is tempted by Satan. We find that there is this dialogue of trust that begins to emerge. So as, as, the, as Satan accuses him of these different things, as, as Satan sort of tempts him with these different things, we find that, that Jesus is establishes that he trusts God for his provision, he trusts God for his sovereignty, and he trusts God for his protection, right? So there's this immense trust. In fact, this whole 40 days is is symbolically what Israel should have done in their 40 years in the wilderness. This is what Jesus looks to do. And so we contrasted that in the second week. Stanley went and actually had a look um, at what was happening with Israel. And he, he, he sort of unpacked this, this awesome story around, around the calf, uh, the golden calf, while Moses is up in the mountain uh, hanging out with God. The people create this calf, and there's this whole thing that kind of goes down. Um, but 
Uh, but Moses ends up saying to God in the wake of that, in Exodus 33, 15 to 16, Moses said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And so there's this idea that, that uh, Israel needs to have God right in front of him, uh, right in front of them, so that they can move towards the things God has in store. So uh, Israel needs to have God front and center. They need Him. And this really becomes the great wrestle for Israel through the entire Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, we see this wrestle. Israel continuously in different ways, whether it's their kings, whether it's them as a nation, whether it's the things that they worship, uh, whether it's the cultures they sort of succumb to, they find themselves in this sort of ebb and flow where they continue to lose sight of the fact that God should be kept in front of them, that God is their leader, that He is sovereign, that He leads them towards the promised land. They, they lose sight of this over and over and over again. And so what I wanted to do uh, in, the, in terms of wrapping up this wilderness component of this series is I wanted to look particularly at what was happening in Israel in the 400 years, the 40 decades, um, right before the arrival of Jesus. Um, it's called the intertestamental period. It's pretty hard to talk about from the Bible perspective simply because it's a single page in most of our Bibles and it's completely blank. between Old Testament and New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. But here's the thing, 400 years is a really long time. And if you think about where we were 400 years ago, for a start, no one with white skin was here in New Zealand, most of us were over in England somewhere. We're all hanging out watching Shakespeare. There was much different social dynamics. Who knows, right? It's a much different time. 400 years is an incredibly long time. There are all sorts of shifts and changes that take place across cultures and across countries. And so there's actually all these kinds of shifts. It's not like, it's not like the Israel that was is the Israel that, that became the Israel that Jesus came into. Sorry, that was a bit of a convoluted sentence. But you get what I mean. Things changed. There was a lot kind of going on. And so I want to explore that just a little bit. And so I want to take us through a little bit of the history of what was happening during that 400 years. It's gonna be a bit of a crash course. Hopefully it doesn't feel like too much of a university lecture, but we'll see, we'll go crash course through it. Um, I wanna explore how, how it's a wilderness for the people of Israel. Um, I wanna look a little bit at how it sets us up for Jesus. And then finally, I wanna conclude with what it might prompt in us as we move into this next part of our series. And so, 400 years, are you guys ready? Okay, here we go. 400 years of silence. Um, we're going to start off very quickly in what we call the Persian era. The Persian era uh, roughly actually takes place um, sort of 100 years in the Old Testament period uh, through uh, includes the last 100 years of the Old Testament period and about the first 100 years of the intertestamental period. So it actually just starts a little bit before that 400 years. So 532 BC through to 332 BC. Um, <clears throat> the Persians actually, they weren't, they weren't like that bad, to be honest. Um, they were pretty good at letting the Jewish people practice um, their religion. Um, in fact, they, they even allowed the Jewish people to rebuild and worship at the temples. And you can read about this in Second Chronicles chapter 36 uh, and in Ezra uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1. And, and ultimately this time, this sort of roughly 200 year period, was actually 
relatively peaceful for the Jewish people. Um, and so there was, a, there was an element of, of being content. Um, and actually, even as we'll see a little bit later, there's almost the sense of like, perhaps this is the best it's ever going to get for us. And so for the Jewish people, they, they almost kind of accept this Persian era because it's like, at least we're allowed to follow God in the way that we want to follow God during this time. But then things begin to shift significantly and we head into this Greek and Egyptian era. The reason why I just kind of put those things together is that the Greek era really starts when Alexander the Great, um, over, this, over a series of three battles, ultimately defeats the Persian king Darius III um, in approximately 322 BC. Um, so Alexander the Great, who, who some of you guys, who did their social history class? Right? Yeah, we all know a little bit about Alexander the Great. Has anyone seen the Colin Farrell movie? Right? Oh, there you go. That's how I learned a lot about Alexander the Great. Um, <clears throat> Alexander the Great had this, really had this idea of like a Greek utopia. So he, he was incredibly well educated. He was uh, incredibly strong, a great strategist, um, but he was a lover of the arts. He was a lover of culture. And he had this concept of imparting a universal language uh, and a universal education and sort of imparting Greek culture onto the world. Um, he ultimately ended up dying uh, incredibly young in, in his early 30s. Um, and so when he died, uh, the, his, the, the whole region that he had taken over was divided into four areas. Um, and this guy, uh, Ptolemy, who was given Egypt, ultimately ended up in charge of Judea, so Israel as well. Um, and so that's why we have this sort of compounded uh, Greek and Egyptian era. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, this... During this time, we have what we call the Hellenization. So this Greek culture begins to, to break into Israel, right? And it begins to sort of take over. In fact, it's not just Israel. It's like all through the Mesopotamia, all through the known world at that time. The Greek culture is taken over and it's a very attractive culture because it's quite self-indulgent and there's a lot of art and there's a lot of excitement and it's a very relational thing. It's very attractive, and because you can kind of go anywhere and kind of experience, it's like the, the Jewish people begin to kind of spread into these different regions. They're very attracted to, very attracted to it. Um, but ultimately, it is a very different culture to what the Jewish people know. And so actually, it's a little bit inconsistent. And so you start to see these groups of Jewish people rise up almost in resistance to it. They begin to struggle with it. This doesn't feel like a God-honoring way of living. And so we're starting to see these little, these little fractures begin to happen even within Jewish culture. Um, <clears throat> moving, on, uh, moving on, we then head into, into really like what, what was arguably the worst, uh, worst period. And this is, this is called the Syrian era. It's very short, 198 BC through to 165 BC. Um, and this, this was basically... Um, the worst thing that could have happened to the Jewish people. Um, uh, Antiochus III uh, completely destroyed the temple uh, and outlawed all religious practices in 168 BC. Um, and I mean, it was, it was basically raping a religion. And I, I know that's really harsh language, but that's the reality of what was being done. It was, it was forcing Jewish people to eat pork. It was telling them that they couldn't observe Sabbath. Um, they, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, perform their circumcision rites. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't go to the temple. It was completely destroyed. In fact, they, they converted the temple into a temple to Zeus, started doing all kinds of crazy um, animal worship and some really nasty stuff. It was like really going out of their way to, to desecrate this Jewish tradition. And so it was a pretty horrific thing um, for any sort of Jewish person to have to go through. 
But out of this rises the Maccabean revolt. So we have this Maccabean era or the Hasmonean era that begins to take place. So we have this elderly priest, Mattathias, and his five sons, and they begin a revolt. They start off by killing someone pretty significant um, within, uh, within Antiochus' uh, sort of circle. Um, <clears throat> and so within three years, so by 165 BC, um, under the leadership of Judas Maccabee, they take back Jerusalem and they restore the temple and the religious practices. But it's a messy time. It's a violent time. It's pretty horrific. But they end up getting it back and they take control um, of Judea again. And for about 30 years, things are all good. It's like everything starts to, starts to kind of settle a little bit. And now we're starting to see the, the sort of long-term impact of all of these different areas beginning to come into play. Because during this time, we now see these sort of religious slash political groups begin to rise up. So you have the Pharisees who start to come up, the Sadducees start to come up. Um, so there are all of these groups that are beginning to rise who are looking to influence and shape culture uh, in a particular way as well. And so there's all of these uh, interesting things beginning to take place. Um, as this era begins to wind down, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of messy stuff as well. Sorry, I know I'm kind of flying through this, but... Um, in 63 BC, uh, we have this guy Pompey come through, this Roman governor who uh, takes over Judea. And the Roman Empire establishes itself within Judea. The Roman Empire, nothing had ever been seen like it before. Um, and uh, we know that uh, King Herod, who you'll know some stories off from the beginning of the Gospels, he's basically put in charge. Even that is a messy story in and of itself. I did a sermon on it last year. If you're interested or if you, if you remember, uh, you can check that out online. Um, uh, but, but basically Rome was able to bring the enforcement of law in a way that hadn't really been done before. So it bought this, this I mean, kind of brutally, but the, it bought this enforcement of law. It bought a new way of, of doing government. Um, it had this concept, uh, Pax Romana, so the Roman peace. So they were like, they have essentially established peace, but through violence. So I don't really know how that works, but that's, that's effectively how they maintained order. So it's like, as long as you, as long as you did right, as long as you didn't get yourself in trouble, your, uh, your life was within the Roman Empire was actually going to be pretty good. And that was how they maintained control for as long as they did through the, through the, the known world at that time. Really significant thing. Um, but also aside from that is that the Roman uh, Empire created the infrastructure for unprecedented trade. And so under King Herod, even though he was an awful king, um, the economy within Israel actually flourished. And there was all sorts of trade and people were able to go and move between countries because of the infrastructure, the road system that had been developed. People were able to trade, connect with other cultures, deal. And it was actually quite a prosperous time. So economically, it was working pretty well. Um, but there was still this sense that we don't have our own place. We don't have our land. We don't get to do the things the way we want to do it. We're still under oppression. 
Now, a couple of other interesting things that really just sort of take, take shape through this whole 400 years. Because of, the, because of this imposition of different cultures, particularly the Greek culture and the Roman culture, uh, and the way uh, the Jewish people begin to sort of move and settle, um, we actually see uh, the way Jewish people worship changes a little bit. So suddenly we move from what's called the temple worship system to the synagogue worship system, and it's almost like the local church, right? So it's like all of a sudden there are these synagogues in these different areas sort of spread all through the known world and people, uh, they go to the synagogue to learn and to worship and perform their rituals there. They start to engage in that particular way. And the other thing that's really... uh Uh, really significant is the creation of the Septuagint, which is the conversion of the Hebrew scriptures uh, into Greek. Um, And so suddenly the stories that we see in the Old Testament, they're they're a lot more available. People are a lot more aware of them. They're reaching into different cultures. So there's, there's, there's this presence that is a lot more spread out, not just in the land of Judea, not just, not just where Israel was, but it's starting to sort of spread out and have a little bit of a presence in other places as well. Um, and so that is quite interesting. And so during these 400 years, because everyone's sort of scattered, Um, we see that the Israelites have shifted the way they practice their religion, the way that they learn and the way that they participate in society has shifted as well. And ultimately how they view themselves in the light of God has shifted as well. Because there is this sense that perhaps this is never going to get any better. When you study the history of these 400 silent years, and if you're interested in like the Apocrypha or, or some of the other prophecies that sort of talk about this time, you can find it. It's just a it's a lot of stuff. It's, it's, you know, it'd be like half a semester of uni lectures to really cover what kind of went on in, in this time. But, but what we do see in the, in the Jewish people is that there is a, a real lack of hope, a, a, a loss of hope. There's a lack of identity and there's a lack of any real clear way forward. So there is the sense of like, well, maybe, maybe this is kind of like our, our lot in life. And so I think when I look at this, this story and when I look at sort of the history, it seems to me that Israel itself is in the wilderness again. So the last two weeks we've spoken about a physical wilderness, Jesus being in the wilderness, Israel themselves spending 40 years in the wilderness. But, but as a nation, as a body of people, this is a spiritual wilderness that they find themselves in now. The word wilderness like, I've spoke, like I spoke about in the first week, the wilderness is a place of preparation. It's often barren. It's often deserted. It's often uncomfortable. It's uncertain. It's certainly not a pleasant place to be in. We, we spoke about that and we explored that a little bit. But from the context of the scriptures, from a theological perspective, the wilderness is a place of preparation. And so it seems to me like possibly... Maybe just God is preparing something that maybe God himself is actually at work, even though there is this recognized silence. I want to talk about, um, I just want to talk about uh, the way the Old Testament is set up for a little bit, because I think that there's something a little bit interesting in this. Um, in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures, the way that they ordered things, they, they just order the, the writings a little bit different. Um, so they don't, they don't actually finish with the prophets at the end. Um, they finish with, with actually the last book of the Tanakh is, is Chronicles. Not Second Chronicles, because they don't break it into two pieces. It's just Chronicles. And Chronicles is the last book of the Tanakh. In the Old Testament, in the Christian Old Testament, um, we have as the last book, Malachi. Um, that might seem insignificant, 
but I do wonder if there's something in it. Um, what I find fascinating is that the end of Second Chronicles seems to set up or establish this idea of an earthly king. All right, it's all about this king, and Malachi seems more about setting up for the coming of a prophet. So I just want to show you uh, real quickly, Second Chronicles 36, 22 to 23. Um, in the first year uh, of Cyrus, king of Persia, so this takes us back to the Persian era, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord their God be with them. So the king of Persia is told by God and he responds to God and says, yes, you people can have your land back. You can build a temple. I will let you do that. And he grants them religious freedom. And, for, and, and if you look at the story of Israel, all they ever look for is a king. They're like kind of obsessed with this king thing. They're always wondering who's going to be our king? Who's going to lead us? And so there's this sense maybe when it comes to the Persian, well, maybe this, is, maybe this is as good as it's going to get. Maybe this is what we're going to be lumped with and what we're going to be left with, but maybe this is as good as we get. At least we get our religious freedom. And so the question, if there was a question that came out of looking at, the, at, at Chronicles as the last book you looked at uh, or the last reading you read, the question comes out, who will be our king? Who will be our king? Malachi sets up for something entirely different. Malachi 4, 4 to 6 says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. So remember from where you came, remember you were in the wilderness, remember I gave you a way to live and that I was going to be with you and before you. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Um, and so, so there's, this, there's this movement that is coming. There's this pointing towards God doing something within human history, right? So there's this pointing towards thing. And so the question that comes out of Malachi is, when will God speak and lead us again? Where is the truth of God going to break into our human history? It's slightly different and so there's this orienting, and so I'll just try and paint it this way. It's like, who will God give us as a king? When will God speak to us and lead us again? So through the prophet, we, you know, it's this question of when will God be our king again? That's what I think the prophets point towards. And so what I want to suggest is when you look at something like the, the intertestament period, which is not something we ever do, Right? It's like not something we ever really think about. But I want to suggest that maybe during that time, perhaps God is silent. Perhaps he's not speaking through prophets. But, but I don't think I would ever say that God is inactive. Because I think that there is um, a preparation of the soil for the arrival of the good news. There is something that's happening within that place within that timeline, within that piece of history that is preparing the soil for the inbreaking of the good news. On the other side of Malachi, we find ourselves in the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 3, uh, 
it says this, verses one to six. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan river. So here's something fascinating. On the other side of Malachi, where there's this looking for a prophet, it's almost like quite deliberately in the story, we see this prophet enter in chapter three, who comes preparing the way. And where does he come from? Interestingly, perhaps even ironically, he comes from the wilderness and he comes to prepare the way. And what's fascinating about that is it said people go to him. So even though they were in their land, it wasn't really their land, it was completely occupied. So they actually moved towards the physical wilderness because it seems like God is maybe, maybe speaking to them from that place, perhaps in, in the way that he always was. The truth of God comes to them from the prophet in the wilderness, this John the Baptist. Um, <clears throat> Justin Owens, who, who wrote uh, a brief intertestament history, which is actually like not that brief. Um, <clears throat> from Alexander the Great uh, up to and through the reign of the Herodians, man's futile attempts to deal with the shifting tide of political power and religious belief had produced very little. Israel was in a kind of spiritual bondage that was even worse than her political bondage. The rise of the various parties and movements was evidence of a sincere search for some final solution to her problem. All seemed to have failed. The stage of history was dark and the situation was indeed desperate. Amid this setting, God broke 400 years of silence with the announcement of the coming of Christ, the faithful servant of God. So for all of this time, Israel are looking for and trying to figure out ways that they can get their land back and can get back to just living their life the way that they felt like they were supposed to, like they always longed to. They were looking for ways. There were these sort of parties that were beginning to emerge, these sort of religious, socio-political parties. It's a different time. It's a tricky thing to try and explore. But there's this, this emergence of, of them all trying to figure this thing out. And yet it's not working. Nothing works. They continue to live under oppression. And so amidst this, God breaks the silence with the announcement through John the Baptist of the coming of Christ. It seems to me like a space of silence could potentially be the preparation of the soil for something. Actually, um, the, the time when, when, uh, when Paul sort of went out on his mission or in the wake of Christianity, and no other time in history could the gospel have spread the same way. No other time in history were, were cultures and people uh, and countries ripe for the picking than in first century in the Middle East. No other time in history. Why? Because there's all this infrastructure, there's all these roads, there's all this movement between countries and different people. There's all these settlements of, of sort of synagogues where people are already going and learning and connecting with God. There's all of these things already in place. The, the, the um, Septuagint is available in Greek, so more people are aware of it. They know these stories. It's like the soil is prepared for something to happen. And maybe this is the moment where God breaks through and moves. It's like, man, even if God's silent, it seems like God can be trusted. Which brings us back to this idea we had right at the very beginning. Jesus trusts God in the wilderness 
the way that Israel was supposed to. Israel is called to trust and they struggle to and they struggle to and they struggle to. And so for us, even 400 years of silence, 400 years as we look at this sort of blank page, it's an important thing for us to think about. What does trust look like in the midst of a story like this? And here's what I think, here's a couple questions that I think are worth us exploring. Where in our lives does it feel like God is silent? Or perhaps, um, perhaps even a better word would be, where in your life does it feel like God is absent? Is it something um, maybe vocational with your job? It's like, man, I thought this was the thing I was supposed to do and I stepped into it, but now I don't have a sense of you there at all. Or maybe it's, maybe it's a relationship or you've tried to, to mend some existing relationships with family or friends or who knows what it is. It's like, I thought I was being faithful in this thing, but actually it feels like you're not there. It's like you're not silent. I sort of stepped out in faith and now it just seems like you're not talking to me anymore. And I had this moment sort of 10 days ago, sort of sitting with, sitting with um, some musicians around the office at, at Parachute as we were sort of reading the stuff that was, that was happening on the news. You know, it was like just sort of refreshing stuff.co.nz on my phone. It's like trying to figure out what, about what's kind of unfolding in Christchurch. And I was just, I suddenly felt this like sort of vacuum. It felt like in my heart, I was, I was void of God for a second. I, I, I just suddenly felt incredibly alone. And I was like, and I was like shouldn't this be the time where you feel close, God, or something. It's like I, just, I was just overcome with like an, an immense sadness. And I've, I've you know, it's, it's, I just feel so raw and fatigued over, uh, f- from what's kind of happened over these last 10 days as, as this sort of shift from, from shock to reality has set in. Feels like perhaps God, God was silent in that somewhere. And I know that that's not everyone's experience, but I'm just, just sharing a little bit of, of just, just how, how something like this can be, be incredibly hard and uh, emotionally traumatic in a way. But then I think when we, uh, when we come to this whole thing of wilderness as well, is there a different perspective that I can take? Um, <clears throat> this whole thing of like Malachi and Chronicles, it's just a slight shift in perspective. It's just less about, the God, uh, less about the king thing and more about the God thing. It's just a little shift. It's a very subtle shift in many ways. But it's a shift that changes the entire trajectory of the story. And so even for me, like in the wake of the last 10 days, it's like, it's like, oh man, I wonder if I'm suddenly becoming a lot more aware of actually, like, actually, I'm, I think I'm encountering the love of God in the people around me and in the conversations that I get to have. It's like there's a, there's a, there's a subtle shift in perspective. And what, finally, like what, what soil is being prepared Man, I look around what's going on the last 10 days and it's like, man, I, I see like an unprecedented value on relationship um, by nearly every single person in our country. Uh, unprecedented value being placed on solidarity, on standing uh, in and alongside the marginalized. Man, I've been impressed. I have seen people embody Jesus like, like washing the feet of our cities and of our nation with love and generosity and grace. I think people have put aside theological differences and chosen hospitality as a way of embodying what God's about. And it's like, I always think it's like, it's a little bit of a shame when we make it more about a theological thing, but, but my goodness, the hospitality of Christ has been, I think has, has outweighed, um, outweighed those who feel like they've needed to say something. But it's like, 
It's like, my goodness, I feel like, like there's something that's being prepared there, perhaps for a deeper, more beautiful uh, sense of relationship across communities, between communities and amidst communities. There's something going on there. And so these are questions, not just in the wake of what's happened in our nation, but these are questions for us in our own lives as we deal with our own wildernesses. Where does it feel like God is silent? Are there, is there a different perspective? Is there, is there a new way of viewing this or considering this? Um, and, and is it possible that, that God is preparing a soil for something new to arrive? This is what we see come through when John comes and proclaims the good news, when he comes out of the wilderness and people start moving towards it. Because that system or the thing that they were looking for, it wasn't working and it wasn't going to work that way. But people were ready for the voice of God to break breakthrough and we're ready for a move of God and that is a story that we are going to be exploring in some depth over the next four weeks and so in a way we we come to the end of the wilderness part and we ready ourselves for the fire part and so if you want to stand I'm just going to close this evening by praying for you so Holy Spirit come Come, Holy Spirit. Come and minister to our hearts. Lord, all week I've been using these words emotionally raw and emotionally fatigued. And I recognize that those are unique to my experience. Um, they very much identify the things that, that I long for your movement in. But I also recognize that there may be others who feel that way as well. So for those of us who are feeling emotionally raw and emotionally fatigued this week, Lord, I pray you would draw close and that you would bring your refreshment. Lord, for those who have, who have been giving and giving and giving, I pray that you would come and replenish. For those who have been champions and advocates for your joy and your love and your grace and your peace, I just want to thank you for them, for the, for the way that they have held up those around them. Lord, would you grant them rest? Would you just lighten that load a little bit? Because even those of us who are perpetual optimists need to know that we are held, that we are supported by your presence. Lord, each of us experiences our own wilderness. Each of us experiences our own confusion in that place, our own uncertainty, our own um, longing, our own questioning, our own sense of you either being near or being really far. Each of, each of us struggles at times to keep you in front of us. And for some of us, like all we need to do, for some of us, it just feels like you're a shimmering mirage in the distance. And it's like, no matter how much we keep pushing, it's like, we just can't seem to get any closer. And so, Lord, draw near to us, I pray. Come and minister to our hearts. Meet us in our wilderness. And Lord, I ask this evening that, that, that as you meet us, that you, would, that you would bring the promise of the kingdom. 
that we would encounter your kingdom and know your kingdom. This is the kingdom that John proclaimed. This is the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated and that we get to press into this story, that this is our story and we get to own it. Lord, would you, would you, would you grant us peace and comfort and security in that knowledge? And Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts as a community for these next four weeks. Lord, for many of us, Easter is just this thing that just rolls around, but maybe not this year. Maybe it's this thing that we are awakened to and find ourselves alive in. Lord, would this story be bigger for us? Would it grab and captivate our hearts in a new and powerful way? So Lord, minister to us. Fill us with your love and your joy, your peace and your patience and your kindness, your goodness and your faithfulness, and your gentleness, your self-control. Fill us, Lord. Fill us and equip us, Lord, to be your body this week. Our nation still hurts. The Muslim community still hurts. People still hurt and and we are needed. So help us, Lord, be the kinds of people who would wash the feet of our nation. Help us move in the rhythms of your love and grace. So like a cloud by the day and like a fire by night, Lord, would you be with us and before us in all things. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.